Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. Um, we had Jonathan Allen from NBC on just a little while ago talking about his book, and he promised he would come back when his book about the 2020 election was issued. And lo and behold, uh, here he is, uh, less than a week after the publication of the book, Lucky, basically the story of how Joe Biden managed against all the odds to win the presidency. So, Jonathan, uh, thanks for coming back. I appreciate it very, very much. My pleasure, Charlie. So let's let's talk about the title. First of all, lucky. What 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 is that about? Joe Biden? How was he lucky? Uh, there are a million breaks that uh, that went his way in this campaign. I, I kind of think of it like uh, if you go back to 2016 uh, for Hillary Clinton to lose, everything had to go wrong for her. For Joe Biden, everything had to go right for him to win. And, uh, you know, I can I, I'll walk listeners through that a little bit. Um, but I also think that, you know, lucky has a broader meaning than just uh, Joe Biden or the, the sort of horse race of the presidential election. I mean, what we saw in the aftermath of the election uh, and the secretary uh, secretaries of state doing certification, Republican secretaries of state certifying election results. Uh, despite intimidation by the president, um, the Supreme Court and all the lower courts rejecting, uh, you know, basically uh, ridiculous lawsuits in, in many cases, and uh, and then the storming of the Capitol and Congress actually consecrating the election. Um, I I think we're all lucky that our republic is still standing. Um, yeah, <laughs> I think so we, so we, it's we, if there's a little bit of a double entendre there, or maybe a very big double entendre, but I mean. It's not just that Joe Biden's lucky, it's that the American Republic is lucky. And also, um, just as a note, uh, you know, some people see that as a pejorative term. I think, uh, I, I always think I want to be lucky. You know, people play the lottery, they want to be lucky. Uh, you're in a sports match, you know, <laughs> playing a baseball game or a football game, you're kind of hoping that uh, that the ball uh, bounces your way or, or you get the call. So I don't really think of lucky as a bad thing or that it uh, takes anything away from, uh, you know, from Biden. He just had a lot of breaks go his way. Well, what's, what's very interesting is reading the book is you realize that uh, this was far from inevitable. It was uh, the, the odds were not necessarily in his favor. Sometimes I think after an election, there's there's the the impulse to make everything seem like it was inevitable. Right. It was preordained. Uh, and as you and by the way, I'm, I was remiss in not mentioning your, your co-author as well, uh, Amy Parnes. Um, and Jonathan Allen wrote this book, Lucky How Joe Biden Barely Won the Presidency. And uh, you and, and and Amy also worked on um, the uh, Shattered, which was the definitive account of Hillary Clinton's shambolic 2016 campaign, which was a much more depressing read, I will have to tell you. Um, <laughs> what you also point out, though, in you, you wrote a prologue, um, which, which you must have had to scramble to do, because you, you say that the, the day the day you the day before you finished the book or the day after you finished the book uh, was the January 6th, the insurrection, insurrection at the Capitol. Yeah, and our, our so, was the next day. Yeah. And, and so uh, obviously people should not look at the title, how Joe Biden barely won the presidency and think that you're implying anything about the questions about who won the, the election. But, but I think it was interesting that in, in that prologue, you, you use the phrase, that luck is the residue of design. So it's not just that, hey, all the chips fell the right direction. There was a lot that went into 
And as you mentioned, are institutions being able to withstand the attack that they had, uh, the democratic process being able to play out, as well as the Biden campaign? So that that phrase, you know, the luck is the residue, residue of design seems to kind of run through your whole book. Absolutely. Uh, you know, look, we I think we thought and th- and again, I should just say, um, you know, all of the reporting and analysis comes from our sources. You know, sources in the Biden campaign and the Trump campaign and the Warren Sanders, Harris, you know, you name it, campaigns, Barack Obama's world, Hillary Clinton's world. You know, all these all these folks, the you know, Republicans outside of the Trump uh, Trump orbit. And so, you know, when we when we're writing the book and we're trying to take readers back through the election and pull back the curtain on often on moments they remember to, to bring them back and say, here's what was going on behind the scenes. Um, all of that's source based information. Um, so uh, this isn't, and we frequently quote sources in the book talking about the sort of near scrapes, you know, with, with disaster that Biden had at, at various points um, and, you know, talking about the stars aligning for him and things like that. But as far as the residue of design, you know, we sort of taking the two pieces, uh, one Joe Biden's candidacy and one uh, the fate of the republic, with Joe Biden's candidacy, the design was that he believed he could put together a message that was uh, pretty good for um, for all of the sort of anti-Trump set. So the Democrats and Republicans who were turned off by Trump, that uh, if he set a clear message uh, and his was battle for the soul of America, uh, which, you know, is, is generic like most political messages, but good enough to sort of contrast with Trump, that a lot of things were able to be, you know, kind of pushed under that umbrella. Uh, and that was the thing he really did right. Um, and there were other things. I mean, he's, uh, you know, as a character, we live in this uh, time of politicians who are constantly ridiculing other people and, you know, kind of angry in, in a lot of ways. And Biden is, you know, sort of the antidote to that, right? Like he's the anti-Trump there. So that's the that's the him part. The country part, the Republic part, the architecture is that uh, that of the founding fathers that has this, you know, dispersing of power. Um, you know, we see all of these elected officials in various places making sure that this election, you know, holds together. Um, and so there's design in that, but it also could have gone sideways. Uh, e- easily. So let's go back a little bit, because as as, as I was reading the book, the part that really um, I, I, I sort of did a, a double take was in your first uh in your first chapter, you go back to Hillary Clinton and obviously the 2016 election. And you have a scene about a, a meeting in 2018 uh, where folks are together and one of her close aides says, this is 2018, if I'm correct about this, that uh, in her mind, she's running again. I guess I'm reading this. So Hillary Clinton was seriously thinking of, of running. She didn't think that Biden could win. And I think it's a very interesting description uh, that Biden thought that she was a terrible candidate and that he was deeply regretting that he didn't run back in, in 2016. So I the, the book starts with that fascinating dynamic between Hillary Clinton and in Joe Biden. Can you talk to me about that a little bit? Sure. And that competition between them, you know, really exists coming out of uh, the 2012 Obama reelect because. Mm-hmm. Obviously, Hillary Clinton wanted to run for president again, and obviously Joe Biden wanted to run for president again, and Obama put his finger on the, you know, put his thumb on the scale for for Clinton. Um, his aides made clear to Biden that they didn't think Biden should run. 
when Biden talked to Obama about it, Obama did not encourage him to run, which was pretty strong writing on the wall. Uh, and, and ultimately, Biden ends up sort of forced out, boxed out, really. Um, you know, Clinton had gotten in and she was running against Bernie Sanders. We report in the book, I think this is the first time anyone's ever reported this anywhere, that Biden was advising Bernie Sanders during the 2016 primary on how to take down Hillary Clinton. Oh, uh, uh, and obviously Biden, uh, Biden had an interest in that because had Hillary Clinton won the presidency in 2016, uh, that Joe Biden surely would not have been able to run for president again um, in 2020 and unlikely in 2024. Um, so, you know, there's, there's sort of all this back and forth and this, you know, they say they're friends and they, you know, they like each other and whatever, but the, the truth is they don't really like each other. And they've been in, you know, sort of at loggerheads for the last eight or nine years. You know, the, the Bill Clinton didn't exist, you know, from a political standpoint, this election cycle, um, you know, for a variety of reasons, mostly of Bill Clinton's own making, but also Hillary Clinton didn't exist this election cycle. That was not somebody Joe Biden wanted around a lot. She did a, you know, a quick video for uh, for the Democratic convention. And, and that was it. Well, it was interesting to read how close he came in 2016 to running. I mean, how how much uh, of the ground had been laid, including his meeting with Elizabeth Warren, at which you report he very explicitly offered her the VP slot if he ran so that it wouldn't have been it would have been Biden Warren in 2016 if it had gone ahead. Or at least that was was his idea. Right. Yeah. So they're sitting at the um, uh, at the. Uh... Naval Observatory in, in Washington, where uh, the vice president lives. And he says to her, you know, if I run, I, I want you to be my running mate. And he's trying to get her to endorse him because he's running, you know, if he gets into the campaign and at this point he hasn't, as he never did jump in, he hadn't jumped in. And he's looking at, you know, Bernie Sanders, who's way to the left of him and Hillary Clinton, who's a woman. And like, he's trying to figure out where his place is going to be and how he can kind of deflect problems. And so he, He's asking Warren to endorse him, basically, and the the carrot that he sticks out there is vice president, and she's like, uh, "I'll take it under advisement." <laughs> um, and there was no reason for her to think that if Hillary Clinton or Bernie Sanders became president, or you know, was the Democratic nominee, that they wouldn't nominate her for vice president either. I mean, she ended up being um, very closely considered for uh, for vice president um, on Hillary's ticket in 2016. And, um, you know, one of the things we report in this book is that, uh, when Elizabeth Warren found out, um, actually before she found out who it was, Hillary had told Warren, it's not going to be you. And Warren said, I hope it's not Tim Kaine. <laughs> really? The, uh, among the, the, the dazzling details in this book that, that I either forgot or never knew, you can tell me <laughs> which is, is, is the role of Jim Clyburn. Um, obviously, uh, if I had to put my finger on the one turning point in the 2020 election, it was Jim Clyburn endorsing Biden before the South Carolina primary. But uh, as you point out, he also played a role back in 2016 where he told Biden not to run and that that was a big blow to Biden. So, um, you know, Jim Clyburn has played a pivotal role uh, in, in Joe Biden's presidential aspirations for some time, hasn't he? <laughs> sort of, uh, Joe Biden can't win without Jim Clyburn, and both Jim Clyburn and Joe Biden know that. I think it's the, the moral of that story. Well, you uh, also, you know, as you read through the book, you get a sense of how he came up with his strategy, but also the that that the headwinds. I mean, you look back on Joe that Joe Biden, how 
his age, uh, the fact that the establishment, the insiders didn't really like Joe Biden. I mean, I think, you know, from the outside, you might think that, well, he was the the insider pick. And as you point out, the insiders were actually very, very cool to him. You had all of the energy, all of the sex appeal of the Democratic Party was among the progressives. And he really felt kind of like, you know, last week's hamburger. Um but you, you, you point out in the one passage where he's thinking about where he could fit in and talking about AOC and the progressives, that Biden thought that they were more vocal and visible than ascendant, that they looked bigger. But it, the reality was that, um, that, that he thought that they didn't necessarily represent the heart of the party. That was a pretty important insight and I think turned out to be correct on Biden's part, wasn't it? Absolutely the right bet on his part. Um, now, I, I think what we saw happen in the aftermath of Trump's election was uh, you had, you know, Bernie Sanders and AOC and some, some of the others on the left, um, you know, come out hardest against Trump. And as a result, uh, people who didn't necessarily always agree with Bernie Sanders and, and uh, Elizabeth Warren, AOC, uh, suddenly found themselves in agreement with them. You know, if, they're, if uh, Trump is you know, doing things at the border, you know, separating families or whatever. And, the, and Bernie Sanders and AOC are the first ones out there to say you shouldn't be separating families. Well, people who agree with, there are a lot of people who agree with them, them on that that don't, you know, normally agree with them. And I think because they were out there sort of staking the ground against Trump so hard, uh, you know, they they got a lot of support, you know, they got a lot of energy and and, you know, even moderate Republicans would say, well, you know, I actually agree with that position that they have more than I agree with the Trump position, even if I don't agree with either of them. Um, and so, uh, you know, I mean, they were vocal and visible. And, you know, Biden had about a third of the Democratic electorate when he jumped in the race. Um, mm -hmm. And that was more than anybody else, but it was still only about a third of the Democratic electorate. And, you know, we go through uh, in painstaking fashion, I hope it's not too painful for readers, but we go through thoroughly sort of why Obama didn't think Biden was going to be very good at this, why Hillary didn't think he was, she was going to be very good at this, why Trump didn't think he was going to be very good at this. Um, and, you know, so to your point, you know, yesterday's hamburger, and it, as it turned out, yesterday's hamburger was, um, you know, worse than uh, the kind of sandwiches that John Boehner says Congress sometimes has to eat. Yeah, uh, yeah, that, that's by the way. Than, it was better than those. Uh, better than the, the the shit sandwiches. The the other point was, I mean, as you, as you look back on the campaign, um, you could see that that he had adopted the pendulum theory of presidential elections, which uh, maybe maybe David Axelrod's idea that that voters will often choose the exact opposite when they're voting, and um, that 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 was one of the ways that that he framed this campaign of being more normal of the soul of the nation. But you point you, you write that he never doubted that he could win the general election. So the general election in his mind, I'm going to beat Donald Trump. The big question was, how do I get through the primary with, with all of these other folks? Absolutely. That's his main driving question. And he worried, um, you know, he talked to his aides and said, uh, you know, has, has the party left me, you know, has it gone too far left? I, I mean, his, his determination was that he could still win it, um, you know, still win the primary. And with regard to Trump, I, I think he just looked at Trump and said, the country doesn't want that. Like that's way out there. And I can, I can be something different that is like very acceptable to a broad majority of Americans. And I think that he actually thought it was going to be easier than it ended up being for him. 
So let's let's talk about the the lucky breaks that he has because I was going back through some of my my own notes the the early debates and there was one of the debates and I I now I don't have it in front of me where um it was early on and he had done so badly in Iowa had done so badly in New Hampshire that he was almost a non-factor in the debate that you had the feeling that everybody had just moved on from him that if he had a moment it was it had passed I mean, there were there were moments when Joe Biden's campaign was clearly going nowhere. I mean, he he was days away from complete oblivion. So you can talk about how did he bounce? How did, how in, in your analysis does he bounce back? What were the breaks? So it starts actually in the in the tough times. Um, the Iowa caucuses, uh, if you'll recall. Uh, Biden comes in fourth place, but nobody yeah. knows that on caucus night, nobody knows what the exact results are because the Democratic Party's um, internet app that they were using to report the results failed. And so we didn't have, like, who won Iowa? We didn't know. Um, for, for days, they, you know, before they called it for Pete Buttigieg, um, Biden comes in fourth and, and a fairly, you know, lackluster fourth, maybe 13, 14%, something like that. And instead of all of the stories being about whoever won and about uh, about Biden's political obituary, which surely would have been written. Yeah. All of the stories were about how they couldn't name a winner. Um, and so from a media perspective and a donor perspective and the, you know, interest in the campaign perspective, he doesn't have to undergo the kind of humiliating loss that that fourth place Iowa finish is. And even going back about 48 hours before that, the writing was on the wall in a poll that the Des Moines Register did, it's the gold standard of polls. And, and Amy and I write about this in the book. We sort of take readers through how uh, that poll got spiked and never released. It was held back really? um, because of a, a glitch in one of the polling calls. And Pete Buttigieg's uh, team like sprung into action and you know yelled at CNN and said, you know, you're going to embarrass yourself if you put out this poll. And of course, for the reason they didn't want to put out is it showed Bernie Sanders winning. Um, and so you don't get what you would normally get in Iowa, which is wall-to-wall coverage of the winner of the Des Moines Register poll a couple of days before uh, before the caucuses. Um, so, you know, between those things, like there's really not as much scrutiny as Biden would have gotten normally for uh, coming in fourth. Then he gets to New Hampshire. He's almost out of money. Um, he, he gets down to the point where his aides come to him and tell him that he might want to think about refinancing his house. So he can put more money into the campaign to meet payroll, which the subtext of which is it's time to get out, sir. Yeah. You know, I mean, the, like <laughs> there's no <laughs> there's no two ways to read that when the aides are like, you might want to like put yourself into personal indebtedness uh, to try to keep this campaign going. But Biden believed in, in himself, and he uh, makes this decision to go to South Carolina before the New Hampshire primary is even announced, before the results are announced. Uh, turns out to be a very um, good symbolic gesture for him because he was going to get pounded in New Hampshire anyway. Uh, he seems to survive that. He like edges into second place uh, in Nevada um, before the Nevada caucuses. Uh, you know, Bloomberg is sort of looming over his shoulder. Mike Bloomberg he gets taken out by Elizabeth Warren in perhaps the most vicious oh, debate stage so slam yeah. anyone's ever seen. Um, and then, you know, you get the, he gets this Clyburn endorsement that not only, I, you know, I think Biden likely wins South Carolina without the Clyburn endorsement, but 
the margin that he got and the energy that he got from Clyburn and the signal that that sent to African-American voters in other states was so huge as to give him the kind of political wave that I don't, you know, I can't imagine that you've ever seen anything like that, Charlie. No. What happened with the Democratic Party over a couple of days there. Um, and I know I'm, I'm going on a little long here, but no, 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 because th- this is this is the moment. And because it was it was such a turnaround. I mean, I remember that Tim Miller wrote something in the bulwark saying the Democratic Party has 10 days uh, to avoid disaster in his mind um, of, of nominating Bernie Sanders. And at the time that I read that, I thought, yeah, it's it, it, it can't happen. And yet over the next 14 days. Not, I mean, everything changed. You had the vote in South Carolina and then that remarkable series of of candidates dropping out and endorsing Biden. I mean, it was it, I don't ever recall a period that compressed. It certainly uh, was the kind of thing that people thought might happen back in 2016 in the Republican primaries, but yeah. it never did. I mean, it was really sort of the the anti 2016 process played out. Yeah, no, the, the establishment of the Democratic Party like jumped into action. Uh, Barack Obama started robo-dialing candidates, um, Amy Klobuchar and, and Pete Buttigieg among them. Um, Klobuchar avoided his call, as we report in the book, um, but she knew what was up. And she was actually trying to meet with Pete Buttigieg to discuss what they were going to do because they were kind of in the same position, which was it was unlikely that they could win uh, the nomination. Um, both of them wanted to see what happened on Super Tuesday if they stayed in and also um, – you know, they knew that if they stayed in, there was a reasonably good chance that they were actually helping Bernie Sanders and not helping Joe Biden. So uh, she wanted to talk to him. They actually missed they, they missed each other. And then Buttigieg decides to drop out. Um, you know, he had made a determination with his aides, I guess, the night of the South Carolina primary um, that he was going to get out. But he told them he wanted to wait till morning, wakes up, decides he's going to get out, sits down to breakfast with Jimmy Carter. And Jimmy Carter's like, you know, you ran a great campaign, but and Buttigieg is like, oh, my God, this guy's telling me, this guy's telling me to get out of the race. Um, and then, you know, he ultimately gets a call after he gets out, uh, ultimately gets a call from uh, Obama. First, he gets a call from Biden asking him to endorse. And he, he's like, yeah, I'm not ready to do that. And then Obama follows up the Biden call and is like, Pete, you're never going to have more leverage than you do now. If you wait until after Super Tuesday, uh, everybody's going to hate you. Um, whereas if you endorse before Super Tuesday, you look like you're a good guy for the party. So you see this like incredible coalescing going on and Obama donors get activated to get in for Biden. And, you know, I mean, just again, we never seen anything quite like it. And then you look into the, the general election and, um, you know, Anita Dunn, one of the top advisors to Biden told, uh, an associate as we report in the book that COVID is the best thing that ever happened to Joe Biden. Uh, and what she meant was. He didn't have to be out on the campaign trail um, subjecting himself to uh, the vagaries of <laughs> of uh, the kind oh, of yeah. he could always trip Joe Biden up. And he was able to control his message um, for, you know, for the entirety of the general election campaign. He was able to control when he went out, who he talked to, how he talked to them, which eliminated his, you know, his biggest, biggest weakness. And at the same time, Donald Trump's out there on the, you know, the, at the podium telling people to inject disinfectant. Um, and so it's just, it's unthinkable that you would have a president who so badly bungled the major crisis um, before him and a candidate who so badly needed to be in a place where he couldn't trip over himself publicly and have that happen. 
And of course, you know, half a million dead, nobody wants to think about this in terms of like right. benefits from that. But uh, but from a, from a purely political standpoint, um, you know, that's that's a help to Biden. I don't think there's anyone who thinks that uh, that COVID and the, the federal response to it was helpful to Donald Trump's reelection. And then we get to we get to the election and, and it is closer not only than the polls show, but it's closer than the Biden people's internal numbers show. And they had redone their models to like uh, to try to account for, as we report in the book, to try to account for, um, you know, what some people might call like a hidden Trump vote. Uh, but basically Biden doing worse and Trump doing better with less educated white voters than they expected, you know, than, than most polls showed. So they thought it was going to be closer in the Biden camp. And it was even closer than that. Um, so close that if you, to get Donald Trump a second term, he would have had to win fewer than 43,000 more votes between Wisconsin, Arizona, and Georgia, which is a, you know, uh, it's a little more than half of the gap. Still breathtaking, yeah. In 2016. Yeah. You know, no, it's, 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 it's breathtaking to think that you can win the popular vote by 7 million votes and still lose the presidency, or the other way around, that you can still win. So let's go back to this point you're making about the, the pandemic creating the ideal campaign environment for Joe Biden. Uh, go back to the beginning, all of the doubts that the insiders, the Obama folks had about Joe Biden. They didn't think he was up for this. Uh, you know, these, the, the, it was the vibe that I got. They didn't think he was up for the presidency, but they didn't think that he'd be able to handle the campaign. And there, you know, Joe Biden for years has been, you know, Grandpa Gaff. Um, and there's that. But there's also the, the question of, OK, I mean, how much of the fastball had he lost? So tell me what your 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 take and what your sources told you about their fears about Joe Biden. Um are they were they keeping him under wraps because he lacks the stamina or because he would wander off into the wrong places? What what were they concerned about? I mean, the real reason that uh, the proximate cause for keeping him off the campaign trail was his vulnerability to getting COVID. OK, right. So Rational. he says to them, I could get sick. My health health guys say I could get sick. My, my personal doctor says I could get sick. I'm not campaigning. Mm-hmm. Um, and that turns out to be, you know, I don't know that they know it on day one, but pretty soon they start to realize like, Hey, it's a lot easier to control the message this way. Um, if we're deciding, you know, who he talks to and when he talks to them and how he talks to them and he doesn't have to be out there. And so I think, you know, that was helpful. And, the, and then they also realized the contrast was helpful. Like typically in, in a presidential campaign, the, the challenger you know, wants a platform as much as possible because the president of the United States has the greatest platform there is and can, you know, has the ability to put out whatever message he wants about whatever news of the day, affect the news of the day. And in this case, Donald Trump was, you know, visibly fumbling the response and even more than fumbling the response, he was fumbling the rhetorical part of the response. So he's out there making himself look bad and, you know, I mean, so the, the people in the Biden campaign are watching this. In the, and, and, you know, we talked to folks who said Biden himself is watching, you know, Trump at various times during his campaign going like, I can't believe this. And, I, you know, and I mean, I can believe it because it's Trump, but I, I can't believe it. Right. Like, what is this guy doing? Um, so there's that. And then, you know, we use Barack Obama sort of as a um, uh, device for the Greek chorus of the Democratic Party in this. When you when you talk about how people perceived what Joe Biden was going to be able to do or not be able to do. 
uh, just before he got into the campaign, Obama met with some of Biden's top aides and basically said to them his concern was not that Joe Biden would lose. In fact, he thought it was very likely Joe Biden would lose in the primary. Um, but his concern was that Joe Biden was going to embarrass himself. It was mm-hmm. worse than he was just going to lose, that he would embarrass himself and in the process embarrass, uh, you know, and, and tarnish the Obama-Biden legacy. Um, so, you know, again, not only did Barack Obama think Biden couldn't win the presidency, he, he didn't think he could acquit himself, uh, you know, commendably. That's fascinating. So, you know, that, I, mean, I guess I guess the question is, you know, I mean, there was a lot of. I think wish casting on the part of Republicans that that that, uh, that Joe Biden was senile, that he wasn't going to be able to handle himself. My sense is that you know he's he is able to he's gotten control of the gaffes. Um, he's looked he looked sharp during the debates. I thought I thought he was you know did 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 well. Um, how how much concern is there going forward? Because I know you talk about in the book about the fact that he thought about running pledging to serve only one term because of his age. And everybody talked him out of that, right? I mean, everybody said that's a really, really bad idea. Al Sharpton told him that Trump would kill him if he said that. But obviously, even he understands that the prospect of him being there for eight years at his age is, shall we say, problematic. Yeah, I mean, he didn't announce that he would only seek one term, but he tried to telegraph it. He tried to telegraph the idea. I mean, he talked to people behind the scenes about whether or not he should announce it um, and was disabused of the idea that that was good politics. But he still, you know, sort of telegraphed that idea, right? He kept talking about the next generation of Democratic candidates and sort of positioned himself as a caretaker for the presidency in a lot of ways. Um, And, uh, you know, I think, you know, to your point, um, in four years, I mean, he's going to be just doing my math here, it's going to be like 82 years old. Um, yeah. And the end of that term would be like 86 years old. I, I, think, <laughs> I, I think it's hard to envision the public being, you know, unless he is wildly popular, um, the public being uh, in the mood to, to elect somebody that age. However, I would have said the same thing about 76-year-old Joe Biden. Um, and yeah. in terms of his fastball, yeah. like he's not what, I mean, He's not who he was when he was 45, um, but there are probably some benefits to that, too. Um, one of the things that benefited him in this race was this, this patience, this ability to sort of sit, sit back and let Donald Trump, um, you know, shoot himself in the foot. And I'm not sure that 45-year-old Joe Biden would have had that patience. Um, you know, he was very much a man in a hurry, very much somebody who wanted to get to the camera, somebody who wanted to, um, you know, mix it up. And so uh, I, it may be that he's, you know, traded off some, some wisdom and judgment for the, um, you know, for that fastball of his youth with the Pedro Martinez movement on it. Well, I think the mellowness has served him well, uh, at least, at least thus far. So going back to, uh, luck being the, the residue of, uh, of, of, of preparation, you know, obviously the African-American vote is just so crucial in understanding how Joe Biden became president of the United States. And as you remind us in the book, um, that was also not completely inevitable. Uh, he, you know, his career began with somebody who uh, could would, would deal with Southern segregationists. He was an outspoken opponent of school busing, which Kamala Harris reminded him of in that one uh, de- debate. And yet the African-American community became his most loyal constituency. 
how did a guy like Joe Biden, old white guy with his record, how did he just describe the bond and how he was able to do that? Because one of your early scenes is him making a pitch to Al Sharpton and kind of getting, you know, a noncommittal response. So it wasn't like from the beginning, the leading African-Americans embrace him. How did he pull it off? And it's not just Al Sharpton. I mean, he went to, to Stacey Abrams. Biden had oh, yeah. him visit her. And, uh, you know, she, she knew what was up and she preempted um, the question of an endorsement by telling him she wasn't going to endorse anybody. But he was looking, you know, for people that in the African-American community who would be, you know, sort of high-level surrogates and, and try to, um, you know, deflect some of those problems that he'd had, you know, with the with uh, you know folks who uh, were upset by the crime bill, um, by his treatment of Anita Hill during the Clarence Thomas hearings. You know, yeah, some of the things you mentioned. Uh, he he definitely believed that he had vulnerability on that. So the question of how does he end up uh, the candidate of African American voters? I think there are a couple of answers to that question. Um, obviously, no electorate is monolithic, um, but uh, I think one of them is. Uh, the fact that he went to go work for for Barack Obama uh, seemed to be something, you know, when I talked to African-American voters, that's something that almost always came up. And it's a message that Biden put out there himself a lot. The Obama-Biden administration, I was there with Obama every step of the way, you know. Um, and so I think that had something to do with it. I think there was a reciprocal, reciprocal loyalty there. Um, I think because he served as uh, Obama's uh, vice president, it was very difficult to portray him as somebody who was, um, you know, even if he hadn't been on the same side as uh, many African-American voters on, on one topic or another, hard to uh, position him as racist. You know, what people forget, of course, is that or what Joe Biden hopes, hopes they'll forget is uh, that he was picked to balance Obama's ticket, not to reinforce it. He was a moderate white guy from the, the mid-Atlantic that was there to, you know, sort of uh, give some some, uh, you know, moderate centrist white balance to that ticket. Um, and um, but the one of the other things that I think is really important too is African American voters more than anybody else, and you know, arguably, um, if you're in the LGBTQ community or, or the Hispanic community, I, I don't mean to say that African Americans are in a in a in a wholly different place, but African American voters um, felt Trump very personally, um, and the desire to get rid of Trump, I think, was very helpful to Biden in that. I think uh, a lot of African-American voters said, I'm okay with the centrist white guy who is, you know, unwoke um, as long as he's the guy that's defeating Donald Trump and is, you know, you know, a far sight better than him. And so I, I think Biden's, I think the view among many African-Americans that Biden was the best position to beat Trump in a general election also made Joe Biden, the uh, the favorite of the African American community, and as we discussed in the book, and really close watchers of politics know, uh, the African American vote is disproportionately impactful in Democratic primaries because of the way that delegates are allotted among congressional districts uh, in the Democratic rules process. So, um, whoever the Democratic nominee is, at least in recent times, has been the candidate of African American voters. You you can't win a Democratic primary. Um, if you don't have that constituency uh, behind you, or at least a, a significant portion of it. 
And obviously, African-American voters played a crucial role in winning the state of Georgia, which got so much attention. So the, the other interesting development, of course, is that Joe Biden ran as a moderate. He beat Bernie Sanders. And yet we didn't see a split with the progressives. So um, having talked about how he pulled off the strong support from African-Americans, talk to me a little bit about Joe Biden's relationship with the progressive AOC Bernie wing of the party so far. I mean, we've seen some cracks here and there, you know, back and forth, but uh, he's 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 kept them close and they were solid for him, as far as I could tell, during the general election. You know, I think one of the things that is a, a huge asset for Biden, and talk, we talked about this a little bit earlier, but um, he doesn't ridicule people. He doesn't make fun of people. He doesn't um, cast their ideas as um, ill-motivated. Um, and so I think one of the things that has helped him early in his presidential uh, days, and, and this connects to the book in, in a lot of ways, is that um, is that he has created a space for uh, the progressives where they feel like they have a voice. They feel like they're going to get an opportunity to make their case to him and that they are not going to be beaten up on or treated poorly uh, because Biden feels like their, you know, their issues aren't as important or might be politically harmful. And I, I think that goes a long way for people, for a faction of the party that usually feels neglected and individually for somebody like Bernie Sanders, who's often, you know, sort of shunned by uh, fellow senators and, and members of Congress and, you know, elite po uh, political leaders in the party. Um, so I think that has something to do with it. But drawing back, you know, many, many months, um, you know, we report this in the book that, that Biden was helping Bernie in 2016. So, yeah. you know, there is a relationship there. <laughs> well, that that's what I was I was I was thinking about, because early on in the book, I mean, you could say that that the Trump's superpower is shamelessness. But early in the book, you effectively describe Joe Biden's likability as his superpower, that you may disagree with him. A lot of different factions might have thought he wasn't the best guy. He was time had passed. But everybody likes the guy. There's a certain thing where. There's there's a, a, a goodwill. And I think that's what you're describing here with Bernie Sanders is that is they could go back and forth on Medicare for all. But ultimately, there was sort of an assumption of goodwill that really paid off for Biden. in the end. And Biden was able to win the primary without taking shots at all these folks. Right. Like, I mean, which is, ama which is amazing. Yeah. I mean, he you know, he was able to he was able to distance himself from their positions clearly without making them look bad. And, you know, yeah. there's nothing worse than being humiliated. Um, and all these candidates spent their time on the debate stage, stage trying to take each other out. Um, in the case of Kamala Harris, trying to take Biden out um, and, and humiliate each other and knock each other down. And Biden had the luxury, I think, of, um, you know, of being a front runner at the beginning. Uh, and certainly you don't want to get into the mud when you're a front runner. But he kept that he kept up that uh, persona that seemed so true to him throughout the campaign in the early days of the presidency, which is that. Like you said, he's he just comes off as a nice guy. Like there's, so he's not out there like like giving you reasons to doubt that he is um, affable. So how hard was it for him to get over Kamala Harris going at him during that debate? Um, essentially implying that he was a racist. I mean that that was that was not your average attack. That was one that a lot of folks would have a hard time getting past. And we, we go into deep detail in the book about how she planned that attack. You know, it was not 
Uh, this wasn't uh, manslaughter. It was it was premeditated. <laughs> um, and, you know, she and her, her team tried to calibrate exactly, like, what? how do we say this where we don't end up getting asked if we're calling him a racist later and they, they decide that the best way to do it is for her to say straight out, uh, you're not a racist butt. And, of course, everybody uh, <laughs> knows that when you start with you're not a racist butt, uh, that yeah, you're a racist. And so – um, you know, we go through all those machinations in the book and, and Biden's reaction as well. Um, you know, this was obviously not something that was picked up by TV cameras, but Biden's kind of uh, he's so befuddled that at the next commercial break, he turns to Pete Buttigieg, who's, who's standing at the lectern next to him. And he goes, this is just a bunch of bullshit. And he's like so frustrated. Um, and he didn't think it was going to come from Kamala Harris. He felt like they had a good relationship. I mean, he knew he might get attacked. Um, but he didn't think that Kamala Harris would be somebody that would like really, you know, drive at home. And if you remember the 2008 presidential debates, you know, Biden was also not somebody who was like attacking people for, you know, the for the effect of like, you know, building himself up. So I think to him it was out of bounds. Um, and it almost cost Kamala Harris the vice presidency when, you know, the sources we talked to inside Biden world said uh, it was extremely difficult for you know, they always say that it wasn't him or his wife that were angry about it. This is like sort of what, you know, they protect the 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 um, principles in that way, but that everyone around him was kind of, uh, or a lot of the people around him were telling him that he, he shouldn't get over it. And, and, you know, my suspicion, my strong suspicion is that he didn't get over it. In fact, we know, you know, what his reaction to it was in real time um, and, out, and in the days afterward. And so uh, it was something that hit him hard. It was something he was upset about. And he calls Jim Clyburn like a couple of days before he's going to make the decision. And he says to Clyburn, I, you know, I've got this real uh, this real demo, dilemma, uh, a battle between my head and my heart over who to pick. Really? It sounds like he's asking Clyburn for permission uh, not to not to pick Harris. Um, and so, uh, you know, the, the head was Harris because she polled better than the other candidates and she had the you know, the resume that matches up with the sort of traditional idea of a vice presidential candidate. And Biden was still having trouble with uh, getting enough African-American voters in key swing states to to come out for him. And so, like, you know, it was, like Harris was like, an, and he had already sort of boxed himself in by promising to nominate a woman. So, you know, given all of those givens, it, she was the clear, inevitable answer. And at the same time, Biden's still struggling with it at the end, right, which tells you, um, you know, he didn't really fully feel like he could trust her at that point. Does he now? Uh, I, my guess is, my guess is no. Um, but that's interesting. Well, you know, he was vice president and he had promised not to run for president. And he spent a lot of his time in the vice presidency, figuring out how to set up to run for president. (laughs) So no matter what Kamala Harris has said to him, he's been in her spot before. Yeah. Unless his plan, unless his already, his plan is that he's going to leave, and leave it to Harris and try to get her nominated, um, then there would be reason for him to be wary of her ambition, um, you know, coming in conflict with, with his needs. So I, I could be completely wrong about this, and I'm prepared to completely back off this, but, but I guess I was somewhat surprised during the campaign and even for the first 50 days that her role has been smaller than I thought it was going to be that she has not been in the spotlight as much as I expected. And listening to that description that, that you, that you have, um, maybe that makes some, some sense that, 
that uh, she's she's not really in the inner circle and that maybe there is a certain wariness about advancing her uh, too too aggressively at this point by the Biden administration. Yeah, I, I would look at it like slightly differently, which is whenever you see Kamala Harris, she's with Joe Biden. Yeah, smart. <laughs> he knows what it's like when a vice president has has time to themselves. Um, and so I think she's been involved in a fair number of things, but she is not out there, you know, shining the Kamala Harris star um, as you might have expected, simply because she's got some megawattage, right? I mean, you know, she is somebody um, who I think is very impressive the first time you see her. Um, and uh, there are a lot of people who have been around her who think that she's not good at following through on that uh, over time, that promise over time. But um, but she is somebody who, who you know, garners attention and is somebody who, you know, is very capable of a lot of the pieces of, uh, of politics. And so, um, you know, for Biden, if you want to make sure that you're not letting her get out ahead of you, um, having her at your side is the best Smart. way to do that. Well, and of course, she's going to have a big week uh, casting one or more tie votes in, in the Senate. So she's it's interesting that 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 part of the the vice president's job, which is usually the least significant now is really front and center in American politics. Jonathan Allen, uh, thank you so much for joining me. The book is Lucky How Joe Biden Barely Won the Presidency. Uh, It is co-authored by with uh, Amy Parnes, uh, Amy Parnes and Jonathan Allen. This is really the inside story of the 2020 election and the harrowing ride to victory by Joe Biden. And of course, uh, if you haven't gone back and and, and read it, uh, Amy Parnes and Jonathan Allen are also the uh, also the authors of the number one New York Times bestselling book Shattered, which was the account of Hillary Clinton's 2016 uh, campaign. So you're kind of like the Theodore White of our age now, aren't you? The making of the president guy. That poor man is uh, rolling over in his grave right now, Charlie, but I am beyond (laughs) flattered that you would uh, compare me to him. Well, thank you. And again, congratulations. Uh, And thanks for coming back on the podcast. And thank you all for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We will be back tomorrow and we will do this all over again.